<laughs> Matthew 3 tells us about Jesus' baptism. And then if we look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, it says this. Then Jesus, there we go. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Let's pray. Father God, I just want to thank you today for bringing us all here for a purpose. And I thank you, Lord, for preparing our hearts, Lord, to hear your word. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that you will clearly uh, have your message conveyed. And uh, Father, I just ask you to, uh, to, to sink it in deep inside of us and to push me aside, Lord, so that your message can be uh, conveyed. In the name of Jesus, amen. I don't know about you, but I've tried to fast for a long time. I, uh, I've never tried to fast like Jesus going 40 days and 40 nights, but uh, I did attempt to do a long fast in 2006 in the summer, in August of 2006. Um, I was in a contemplative state of mind. I just had broken up with a girl after dating her for nine months. And, uh, and then the previous year, I, I went through a divorce and a separation, not by my choice. And so I was, I was kind of screwed up uh, emotionally on about those things. And so I decided that I wanted to take my focus off of relationships and then put my focus back on God and strip away everything else. So I attempted to do a fast. And I started out on, uh, let, me, let me just say this, I, I, I did a fast uh, of not eating food, but I decided it would be a water fast. So all I did was drink water, okay? So Saturday, I ate dinner. And uh, about 24 hours later, somewhere around that time, I, that's when I decided that I was actually going to fast. I was already a day ahead uh, of, of schedule. And, you know, that's not really a fast, but you know what I'm saying? I'm already having eaten for, for a whole day. So I decided that Sunday that that's what I was going to do. Monday morning, um, I got up early in the morning because I, I worked early. I got up at three o'clock and I ran a mile and a half because I didn't just want to, uh, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't just fasting. I kind of had some unbiblical reasons for fasting as well. Like I was about 15 pounds heavier than I wanted to be, and, which is ironic because I'm about 15 pounds heavier than I was back then. And uh, so I, I didn't just want to fast. I was also uh, kind of in, in misery and I kind of wanted to wallow in that pain. So I decided I was going to just not eat and just drink water, but I was also going to run. So I ran a mile and a half that morning, went to work. And when I came home, I ran about three miles, three and a half miles. And I was tired and because uh, I hadn't eaten in a few days. And then Tuesday, I did the same thing. This is now my third day of fasting. And I got up at the same time. And I ran my mile and a half. And then when I came home that afternoon, I got about two and a half miles and then realized I'm not the smartest man alive. If, you know, a mile and a half, three miles, that doesn't sound like a whole lot. But if you don't run on a consistent basis, that's a long ways to run. And when you haven't eaten, uh, water does not fuel this, this machine right here. This is, this is hardcore. And so water just doesn't do it. So I was running, but not running that far. And I couldn't go much further. Wednesday, I, uh, man, pizza was calling my name. My fourth day, I mean, I was struggling. I was, I was trying to put those hunger pings away and to, you know, strip everything away and just focus on God and, and what he was doing. And 
at the end of the day, I decided it's time to break the fast. So I went to New York Pizzeria, got a slice of pizza and some Dr. Pepper, something other than water. And uh, I ended my fast. And surprisingly, I lost 15 pounds in four days uh, because I'm so godly. But, you know, that's not, that's not a, that's not, that's not, you know, a true biblical sense of, of fasting. I'm trying to, a legitimate fast has nothing to do with inflicting pain on yourself, but has everything to do with stripping down your basic needs and focusing on your, your relationship with God. Verse three, let's go to that. Verse three says, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Another translation says, since you are the son of God, because the devil fully knew that Jesus was the son of God. It's not an accident that the first temptation that Satan uses to dethrone Jesus invokes uh, the one thing that we all have, an appetite. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was hungry. And the one thing that might just have worked would have been food. That might have been the one thing that worked. Satan employs the temptation that he did uh, with Eve back in Genesis. The pull of consumption that leads to self-provision. Verse 4 says this, But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This rebuttal by Jesus makes most Christians think that, you know, he's just kind of quoting one of the many stored scriptures that he, he stored as a child. And that's probably true. He probably memorized that one while working with his father in carpentry. But there's more to it. Jesus is basically saying to the devil, I know who you are. I know what you want. And I know who I am. And I know what the father wants for me. Satan first appears to Eve as a serpent or a snake, like that picture. Snakes, as you know, they swallow their prey whole, and then their jaws just kind of suck it in. And that sounds just like the devil. With this, the Bible begins to warn us against the the way of the appetites and the way of consuming yourself until death. We can look at Hebrews chapter 12, which warns us not to be like Esau and trade our inheritance for a bowl of stew. We can look to Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, where Paul talks about the enemies of Christ. It says, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory and their shame, with minds set on earthly things. From the tree in the garden to the stew in Esau's bowl to present day, the people of God are tempted to turn their digestive and their reproductive appetites away from Christ and into their own self-provision. And what we'll have to do is decide whether we'd rather be fed or fathered. And that's on your listening guide. Be fed or fathered. Let's, be, let's look back at, at Matthew chapter 4, where it says that Jesus was hungry. God created us with appetites to drive us toward what we need. Whether it's food, sex, sleep, or something else. God created appetites to tell our bodies that we're running low on something that our body needs something to keep going. Most of our appetites are for something natural, but not always. Uh, sometimes we uh, have fed our bodies for so long other things, um, like drugs and alcohol, caffeine, sugar, exercise, things that, that aren't necessarily natural. If you've been drinking coffee every morning for a few years and then you decide not to drink one morning, your body's going to be kicking you 
because it thinks it needs it, right? These are appetites. Satan attacks Jesus at a very weak moment. After 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus is weak physically and he's dehydrated. He's not in the wilderness that you and I think of with shade and lots of trees. If, where Jesus is at is uh, it's more like a desert and it's full of lots of stones and, and uh, rocks. And uh, so Satan t- takes his first dab at temptation where Jesus is weakest by going for his appetite, uh, by suggesting uh, the rocks that Jesus is looking at uh, in abundance and turning them into food. You might think that uh, bread is a, for, a poor food choice. You know, if it were me, God would be tempting me with filet mignon cooked at medium or, or chicken parmesan. Bread isn't just some snack, some before-the-meal tasty treat. Bread was a dietary staple for any Middle Eastern man in this time. And Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the, literally the, the house of bread. He was used to smelling the aroma of fresh-baked bread, and I'm sure he could imagine breaking into a loaf and tasting that fresh bread as Satan is throwing down his very best. So Satan goes to, uh, to Jesus with a very real temptation. The temptation isn't like, if you are the son of God, let's see how far you can throw this rock. It wasn't easy to say no to. It was, uh, it was very real. Jesus hadn't eaten in 40 days and he didn't just get hungry. He's been hungry since the beginning of time when God created him with an appetite. The real idea here is that Jesus is very well the son of God. And at any time, he could have turned those stones into loaves of bread. At any time. He was like Eve in that they shared a very similar temptation. Like Jesus, all she had to do was reach out and put that food into her mouth. The issue is fatherhood for both of them. That's the root of Satan's temptation. Notice Satan says, uh, he starts his temptation out with, if you are the son of God, it's fatherhood. It's hard to imagine even the worst father in the world not providing food for their children. Fatherhood is about provision just as much as it is about bloodline. And human fatherhood is modeled after the example God has given us. Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew chapter 6, our Father. And we share uh, with Christ, we share in that father-son dynamic that's at the center of the universe. Human fathers are to bring home the bread just like God, our Father, brings home bread and food for his sons and daughters. This is, this is where Eve and Adam, this is where they fell, okay? Satan convinced Eve that the Father God was holding something back from her. And her trust that her father would provide for her went to the wayside. Instead of seeing God as uh, her provider, she saw him as her rival who was holding back from her. And then Satan convinced her that her appetite was a more true sense of what she needed. Man, that sounds familiar. Trusting uh, my appetite over my father, God. Trusting my own sense of what my body needs. When I was in college, uh, I had, I had this, this roommate from India my senior year. And uh, this is my, my university always did this to me. They always gave me a foreigner for a roommate. And he wasn't the ideal roommate, you know, for me at the time. I, uh, I was 20 years old. And so this guy from India was uh, nearing 30. He was balding. He uh, was from India, so he spoke a different language. He smelled like curry. 
he, uh, I, yeah, I'm a racist. Uh, he, uh, he was, he, the dude wore sw- uh, dress pants wherever he went. And it drove me crazy, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the guy's name is A.B. Colomel. And he is, uh, he's probably the best roommate I ever had. He was, he was such a great guy. He, my, I'm sorry, my mic keeps moving around here. My bad. He was, he was such a great guy and such a great sport that I would uh, see him coming down the halls and I would yell, lock your doors, the Indian's coming, lock your doors, the Indian's coming. I'd give him a hard time whenever, whenever I'd see him. And I'd call, I never called him by his real name. I always called him A.B. the Indian, uh, again, because I'm a racist. And so he would, uh, he would come down the halls and I would, I'd ask him, man, you know, am I teasing you too hard? Uh, you know, is that bothering you at all? And he said, no, if you didn't tease me, I'd know that you didn't love me. He was a great guy and he was very sarcastic and, you know, he would give it right back to me. But his dad... Uh, was the head of the Indian Evangelical Association in New Delhi, India. And uh, A.B. would, uh, A.B. the Indian, his, his, he gave me a, a biography of his dad. And his dad was, was great. He, uh, he was a big guy. He was, you know, he was well-known. And he was really something big. But he never acted like it. He, he, uh, he was a great guy. He, when, I, when I read his book, it said that, he had heard uh, from God while he was in the military about uh, getting into the ministry. And so he resigned from the military and he, he told God that he will never, ever store up any wealth. And so this means that every single day he depended on God to feed him. If he had extra food or even food for the next meal, he would give it away. I'm not kidding. He would give it away every time. And this is, this is really, uh, this is a weird notion for me growing up in, in middle-class America, to depend, to, to even think of, of a guy giving away his food and depending on God every single day to provide him food. Somebody had to give him food every single meal for him to eat. Then as his family grew, he had to depend on God to feed them as well. The craziest part about all of this is that the Indian Evangelical Association was very well known. It became very well known and became very large. It, uh, even, even with all of that, the guy and his family, they slept on rugs in a house that they didn't own. And they wore clothes that were given to them. And they skipped meals. And they ate like they were homeless. All the while, this organization is a multi-million dollar organization. I will never, ever store up wealth. I think uh, Mr. Vargas, I think he understood what, what true fatherhood meant. And I think that he can relate to Jesus when Jesus is asking daily for his daily bread, asking his father. The Israelites were out in the, in the wilderness centuries before Jesus came. And God called them out of Egypt with the promise of a land filled with milk and honey. He appealed to them through their appetites by telling them of a promised land. Then out in the wilderness, they were tested with the same lesson of choosing whether to be fed or to be fathered. God provided his people with a, with a bread-like substance called manna that would appear on the, on the ground every morning. And then he also provided them quail and water that would spring up from a rock whenever Moses commanded. And they had a hard time with this test and they, they rebelled against God's voice. 
because of their cravings. Some of them, not trusting in the abundance of God, tried to store up the manna just in case God didn't come through that day. And then overnight it would spoil and they'd wake up to find maggots on top of the, of the manna. This was a hard lesson because the Israelites had become Egyptians and the word of God had become slaves to their stomachs and not the other way around. They actually envied the dead Egyptians that had drowned in the sea because at least they died with full stomachs. They started to believe that God had drawn them out to die of hunger rather than save them. The test revealed that the people wanted a Pharaoh more than they wanted a father. They had forgotten the tyranny and the slavery and the threat of death back in Egypt. Instead, they remembered what was more important to them, the demand of their appetites. Numbers chapter 11, verses 4 through 6 say this. Now the rabble that was among them had a strong craving, and the people of Israel also wept again and said, Oh, that we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there's nothing at all but this manna to look at. They concluded later in verse 18 that it was better for them in Egypt. They decided it was much better for them to be slaves than sons. And it's no wonder that, that we are like our ancestors and that we, we tend to favor being fed than fathered. In reading this passage in the Bible, it's, it's hard for me not to, uh, to see the end result. I mean, I've, I've read this story, and m- many of you have read this story of the Israelites. I know what's going to happen. And so, you know, in, in the midst of their belly aching and uh, everything that they complain about, I know that eventually they're going to get to the promised land. They're eventually going to get there. So it's hard for me to, to sit there and I, and I watch, you know, in their, in their protests and in their torment, I think, man, why can't you just trust God? Jesus was, uh, when he was being tempted by Satan, has the privilege of knowing the end result. Unlike the people of Israel who can't seem to decide who to trust, Jesus never leads us to believe that he ever, for for a second, took his eyes off of the end result. Don't get me wrong, I, I think that probably the mere mention of food probably caused Jesus to, to salivate in his mouth, especially that fresh baked bread. But he probably thought at the very moment about the promise of a feast with his father in heaven. Isaiah 25, 6 says this, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. Jesus knew that he'd have plenty of bread to come. And, and at the moment, it was feast or fast, whichever his father chose. He knew that the bread of demons would leave him dead in the end. He knew the, the end result if he fasted and he was able to resist that temptation. The second point on your, on your listening guide says, we have to keep in mind the end result. In order to defeat temptation that wages war in us on a daily basis, we have to understand that our appetite uh, why we have appetites in the first place. This means that we have to recover the sense of who we are apart from what we want. The world around us causes us to combine the two and ends up defining us by what we want. The world may say, if you want a drink, you're a drunk. If you want sex, you must feed that hunger. 
because that's what your body needs. You don't know me. (laughs) You don't know what my body needs. Don't judge me. But you don't live by bread alone. And you're not what you want. The third point on your listening guide says this, you are who you are. And that's defined by the word of God. It might be that that you are freed from whatever it is that your appetite draws you toward. But usually he enables you to fight it instead. The fighting might go on for a day, a, a decade, or even a lifetime. And if we pretend that our appetites are instantly nullified by conversion, then we're rejecting God's word, which tells us that we are in a war zone. We need to let to not let our urges scare us. Instead, we should let them drive us to pray for wisdom, to see where what we were created to be and to do. We shouldn't neglect the written word of God when it mentions our appetites so often. In fact, the Bible talks about, about food uh, over 74 times, including the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is like a, is like a billboard that Jesus has given us through bread and wine that announces to us that his presence is with us. Every time we gather together and break bread and drink wine, it's like Jesus is announcing to us, your natural appetites are real and they're good and they're created and they're pointing towards something greater than we can even ask or imagine. He points towards the idea that your hunger for things is temporary and that you're going to be hungry again. But God provides the bread of life that's lasting and filling. Thanksgiving's coming up and, and I, uh, it makes me think of when I was a kid at my grandparents' house for Thanksgiving. And you can probably relate to this. We had two tables. We had, had, we had the big table and the kids' table, right? Well, at my family's house, it wasn't that the kids couldn't fit around the big table. It was more likely that the kids were messy. And they had bad manners. And so in order to be led up to the big table, they had to learn how to eat. The Lord's Supper isn't just a remembrance of the past. It's a, it's a sign of things to come. It's a training session for when we learn to eat at the big table. It's not a coincidence that much of Jesus's ministry was tied to food and appetites. Jesus says, eat my flesh, drink my blood, which may have been shocking, to the, to the people at first when they heard those words. But we know what Jesus is talking about. And as we sit at the Lord's table to feast, we're focusing our attention on the cross and what Jesus was willing to do. Paul said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If Jesus were to have changed the stones into bread out of hunger, then Jesus never would have made it to the cross. In return, uh, it, it would have undermined God's plan and, and his complete provision for us. Our salvation hinged on Jesus' mouth. Satan was provoking Jesus to speak, not to the stones, but, uh, I mean, not to God, but to the stones, to command them to become bread. Then out of the silence in the wilderness, Jesus used his mouth not to eat, but to proclaim remembered promises. Jesus heard the the words of his father and believed every word. You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Those words to him were louder than any kind of stomach growl. He knew that he'd been brought out into the wilderness to be tested. Not that he could test his father. 
the, this leads me uh, to talk about the Israelites again. Why did God humble the Israelites with food and wants? He did so so they wouldn't become Egyptians or Canaanites or slaves of other gods when they got to the promised land. If they fell for the illusion of self-provision, then they, they would have had their full stomachs, but they would have had a sense that they provided for themselves. And by the power of their own hands, they amassed wealth. They would have eventually turned to other gods to see if they could amass more wealth and more and more. And everything that their appetites craved. That sounds pretty familiar to today's society, if you ask me. But Jesus wasn't like them or us. He knew that when he was being tempted, that he was a king. That he was in training to be that king. And as a king, he had to have control over his appetite. Jesus knew that being hungry wasn't some sort of punishment or negligence. He knew that it was, it was a test that would show that God had his best interests at heart. It became a discipline that embraced God as the father who knows best. God knows what you need. He's not ignorant to your appetites. God allows his people to hunger so that he could feed them with something better than they can feed themselves. The Israelites wanted Egyptian onions and leeks and God was training their appetites for bread from heaven. Sex is just like food in that it's a natural appetite. The difference is if you don't eat, you're going to die. If you don't have sex, you're just probably not going to be very happy. Food is necessary in our lives to live, whereas sex isn't, no matter how much your husband tells you otherwise. There's a necessity for sex, though. You won't die without it, but your family tree is not going to be budding any, anytime soon. And, you're, and the, the human race is going to cease to exist. The appetite for sex can sometimes be just as strong as it is uh, for food. Somebody with a strong appetite for it might act just as crazed as somebody that's dying of starvation. Both appetites were created in us as a point in us to point to the idea that there's something greater than ourselves. A sexual union is a biological and a spiritual union that points to God's definitive plan for the joining of Christ in the church. That's why sexual infidelity is, is so dangerous. It basically rejects the gospel and disfigures the icon of Christ in his church. It rejects God's foundation or structure for Christ in the church. Feeding the sexual appetite outside of marriage is seeking the mystery of the universe apart from Christ. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 5, or 15 through 17 says this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. When you feed that sexual appetite outside of the will of God, you're pairing that sin with Christ like a prostitute. For the most part, appetites are about consuming, whether it's about bread or sex or economic security or or just stuff. Consuming at times comes from coveting or covetousness. If a guy walked into the church and, I don't know, maybe uh, celebrate recovery or small groups and he started talking about uh, a female's backside, somebody's bound to step up and go, hey, dude, man, that's not appropriate. You know, we don't, we don't talk like that. Don't, you know, that's not right. 
But if a dude walked in and he said, ha, man, I just came back from H&W Honda and I saw the most beautiful bike. And then he starts describing the, all the beautiful parts of the bike. How many of us would step up and go, man, that's coveting. We shouldn't talk like that. More than likely, it would probably be a conversation starter, especially at our church. The fourth, uh, the, the fourth part in your uh, listening guide here, the ultimate antidote to our appetite is gratitude. With gratitude, we embrace God's discipline, feasting when he feeds us, waiting when he doesn't, knowing that he wants what is good in the end. Gratitude and self-control won't keep your stomach from growling. But the discipline that God teaches you will put old appetites to rest and cause you to hunger for new godly ones, new godly appetites. Through the spirit of Christ, you learn to crucify the flesh with its passions and desires. We'll learn to turn away from the momentary satisfaction and turn our eyes on a more permanent satisfaction. In conclusion, we can all learn from Jesus. He understood what his ancestors didn't. And that's when confronted with the question, if you are the son of God, he heard the words of his father who echoed louder inside of him than any of his stomach growlings. Jesus understood the appetites were given to us by God so that we could hunger for him. In order to follow Jesus and his example, we must learn to be fathered as well as being fed. In order to eat at the big table, we have to put aside the cravings for the things that can't satisfy us. Did I say that right? We have to put aside the cravings for things that can't satisfy. I did say that right. And learn that it would be better to starve to death. You all, uh, you, you all got a, a registration card with your listening guide this morning. If you would fill out that front part so that we have your information. And then on the back side, this is what I want you to do. If you're willing to, okay, if you're bold enough to do this, if you will, share with me your appetites or your appetite for the things that you're self-providing, that you're feeding yourself outside of God. And if you're willing to do that, uh, I will join with you in prayer over those things. And the more specific you are, the more specific I can be in prayer. And if you have uh, any prayer requests, Go ahead and put that on there as well. well. We'll definitely pray over that. All right. And then when you are done and we're dismissed outside those doors where you got the listening guide, you can put that inside of the registration card basket. Ah, oh, there we go. Caught you off guard there. I tried to lead up to it so you'd know. The registration card basket. All right. Uh, and then we also have two other baskets. Uh, the first one is the joy basket. This is, uh, this is for our tithes and our offerings. Um, if you are a guest today, uh, make sure you just walk right on by that. Don't feel obligated to, to put anything in there. But if you are a member of the church or you're a regular attender, uh, it's our job to, to provide for the guests. And it's our job to, to keep the lights on, basically. Uh, so let's do our part, okay? Um, also, the, the, the third basket is the bagel basket. I do too. Bagel stands for building a great life. And this is a basket that we created uh, for, for pledges, for people that had pledged to help us get out of debt and to get a larger building when we need it, to, uh, to give housing for the children back there that are outgrowing right now. So 
that's that. Those are the, the baskets. Let's pray and uh, then we can be dismissed. Father, I, I want to thank you that you did create inside of us an appetite. There are so many natural appetites that, that we've been given, God, but God, you overpower even those natural appetites and you cause us to want more. God, I just ask you to, to line up our appetites with, with what you're feeding us. Help us to, to not self-provide, Lord, but to trust in you and to see, God, that you, you have our best interests at heart. God, I just ask you uh, to continue to, to just work inside of our hearts, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you be with uh, uh, our church members that are in Haiti. I ask you, Lord, to, to just bless them in their in their uh, their service. Lord, they pay all that money to go out there to work for you, and that's an awesome thing. God, we just love you and praise you, and thank you for this day. Amen.